First, I just want to say thank you really quickly to my uh, committee, to the district, for making this possible, to God, of course, for making everything possible, to my service squad, everybody who's pitched in to do service and setup, and Jake on sound over here, and of course to Mary and Chad for coming all this way and taking us through this work, and with that, I will go ahead and uh, bring Mary up from St. Louis. Okay, so hi everybody, I'm Mary, and uh, I'm not going to say my full name because we're going to record this and I want people to be able to do whatever the heck they want with it, but um, my full name and my contact information is right there. Um, if I mess up or say something that doesn't make any sense, I want you to tell me, just don't scream it out in the middle of the presentation. Wait till afterwards, send me an email, send me a text, or just pull me aside. Um, with that, um, I'm going to kick things off with a prayer real quick, and this was a prayer that one of my heroes um, in AA, who was passed on, uh, told us one day, and it's, uh, God, move my pride and ego aside, align my will with yours, speak through me, give me the words to say, and correct my mouth and everybody else's ears. Um, first of all, thank you so much uh, for coming, and I, I want to thank Rachel for doing all this work. I can't see her. Uh, sorry. I, I'm usually really, really loud, okay? So nobody tries to mic me. And so I am not, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> so um, we're going to see how this goes. So thank you all for coming. Uh, Rachel, thank you for organizing everything. Um, and I, uh, I know this isn't about me, but in case it's not clear, this is a really, really big honor for me. Um, I love doing this. Um, this program saved my life, uh, but I still just find this, I can't even tell you, I was I'm just so proud and so honored, and there's nothing I would rather do or, or be than is right here sharing all of this with all of you. Um, I'm supposed to talk about steps one and two, and I'm going to do that, but I do have to give you a, just a little blurb about me so that you know that I'm a real drunk. Um, uh, I, you know, it's not my story, um, so we're not going to get into that, but basically... Um, I started drinking when I was 22. I started try, st trying to stop drink, drinking when I was 28. I came into AA and I spent four years drinking in the rooms of AA. Um, and I had a lot of um, embarrassing, humiliating experiences like coming to AA meetings drunk and sharing. Um, to this day, if someone comes into a meeting drunk and shares, I make a beeline for them and give them a big hug and tell them, tell them it's okay, come back, right? Uh, because there's a certain type of, there's just, I can't even explain the burn and the hurt and the humiliation of realizing you made a fool out of yourself at an AA meeting. It's just, it's a certain type of pain. Um, basically, I spent a lot of time in AA meetings talking about feelings and triggers and what I was going to do to manage my life in order to not drink. Um, when I came into AA, I was a high bottom alcoholic. By um, the time I turned 32, I was a low bottom alcoholic. And um, a group of big book thumpers down in Texas got a hold of me. Uh, they did everything the big book said. They got me through the steps in 30 days or less, and it worked like a charm. And I haven't had a drink since. 
Um, and that moment when that 10-stop promise hit me and I realized I wasn't thinking about drinking and I wasn't thinking about not drinking, I had this overwhelming of like, give me that book, come on, let's go, let's mobilize. Um, you know, we're going to go help some people. And um, I was in March of 2010 and I, and I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since then. Um, and for someone like me, um, and it's a cliche, but it's true, you know, like birds fly, fish swim, marry drinks, right? So for someone like me to be sober that long is impressive. For someone to be like me to be sober and not wish they could drink, that's a miracle. So if you want more details, if you need more qualification, that, you know, come see me afterwards. So we're going to talk about step one. And um, when I got sober, uh, so I had spent four years in AA, and I could not tell you what an alcoholic was. I literally, um, it was just my, it was just my journey. I, I came, and this isn't bad mouthing, you know, AA or anyone else like that. This was just my experience. I came in and I was told a lot of things like, I would say, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? And I would, people would say, I, we can't answer that for you. You know, you have to answer that for yourself. Um, they would, people would get up and they would talk about like what alcoholism means to me. Um, and it was really, really hard, right? Um, and then they would talk about um, how they built their own program, you know, and, and what they did in order to stop drinking. And so um, I just, you know, when I first came into AA, I was able to stay sober six weeks, you know, and I was told to keep going to meetings, and I did, um, and by the time I actually got sober, I would, I couldn't, I couldn't keep myself away for six weeks. I would, I would get up in the morning, and I would say, today's the first day of the rest of my life, and I'm never going to drink again, and then um, by like five or six o'clock, I would be drinking, right, um, and so how to put it, you know, there are no AA police. Nobody's going to come in here and, and tell me I'm doing it wrong. You know, if I say something or someone says something that contradicts me, there's not going to be some board that's going to come up and say this is wrong. But whatever I say, hopefully, will be reconcilable with the, the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so when I encountered a group of people that were like, oh, no, no, Mary, you don't have to define alcoholism. We're going to tell you what that is. We're going to tell you the specific questions you have to answer for yourself. And we can't answer those questions, but we can absolutely tell you what makes someone an alcoholic versus a non-alcoholic. That was huge. That was a huge difference. And so if, um, if, I, if I accomplish nothing else, I just want to be able to leave you guys with that. You know, that for the... Um, I realized where everyone came here know they were coming to a big book workshop, so probably not one's going to get too upset. But what we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about how maybe all of the planet defines alcoholism. We're just talking about how this book defines alcoholism. It, it's actually really, really simple. You know, it, it's not going to be complicated. Um, again, you're all here because you wanted to learn about the big book, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to qualify the book for you guys, right? Because um, I figure you're kind of sort of halfway sold if you're here, um, and I don't want to take up too much time. So, but, um, I'm just praying.
there's a couple of sentences on the, the first title page, or not the title page, the first page of the preface, which is XI, which feel free to go along with me or not. That's, that's okay. I promise you there will not be a quiz at the end. But I love it that you all grabbed your big books. Um, there is a paragraph, um, the second paragraph, and there's a sentence in there. And it says, because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large number of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. And basically, booze is booze, right? It's, it's ethanol plus flavoring. Like, it, it hasn't changed. And the disease of alcoholism hasn't changed. So in over 80 years, the instruction part of the book, we haven't had to change. Um, the part that has updated are the stories in the back of the book. And what that has to do with is that, um, so I didn't think this was going to go there, but you know, guys, I prayed and what comes out comes out, okay? Um, originally, before we had AA, we had um, the Oxford group, and they had these four absolutes, and they were predominantly like middle to upper class white Christians, right? And there was also just, especially in the alcoholic circles, it was mostly men. So the stories in the back of the book for the first edition, we were still part of the Oxford group. They called us the alcoholic squadron of the Oxford group. That's really what they were. And you know, for identification purposes, that's what you're getting, middle to upper class white Christian men, which, hey, that's all the men in my family. I love those people, nothing against them, but we needed some more identification. So as the fellowship grew, um, as we began to have more uh, you know, diversity in our fellowship, the stories update to reflect the fellowship. And that's all that has changed. Uh, but the actual instructions, which are, you know, this is how you ter determine if you're an alcoholic, this is how you do the steps, that has, that has been the same, right? And it also tells us here that this is a textbook. And this was a huge part of my story. Um, when I was going to meetings and thinking that I needed to somehow define what my specific unique disease was, and then I needed to figure out what my specific you know, solution to get this disease in remission, um, it was just really hard work. You gotta listen to everyone, you gotta write down, you gotta take what you think is right, then you gotta write your own custom disease, and you gotta write your own custom plan, and then every once in a while you get drunk, you gotta start the whole thing over again, because where's that notebook that had all that information? It's really hard, right? But when someone came to me and said, this is a book and it's a textbook, right? And so we're going to learn it, just like you learn math. Now, if you don't like math, just stick with me. This really simple math, right? When I went to school to learn math, I wasn't a child prodigy. I didn't grab the algebra book and jump to the back of the book and just start doing problems, right? I was a kid. They taught me numbers. Then they taught me addition, then subtraction, multiplication, division. And then, you know, one day I was doing pre-algebra. And when they said, you know, AA's just like math in that aspect, we're going to go through the work in order. We're going to learn how to take each step. And then you're going to get information in each step. And you're going to build off of that. That really helped me because in that moment, I became teachable. Right? And so it was like, okay, let's just learn the book. Let's learn what the book said. Right? Um, and it was, it was just a lot easier. So with that in mind... Um, Another plug for the steps. So I'm always afraid I'm going to say this wrong. And why don't just write it in the book? I don't know. We had, back in the Oxford groups, they had these four absolutes. If anyone, if I get them wrong, someone yell them out. They had absolute love, 
absolute honesty, absolute purity, and absolute unselfishness, right? Running joke is only thing an alcoholic can do absolutely is be absolutely drunk, okay? They were just too hard. They were too hard. So they immediately started experimenting, which I know you're thinking, only drunks, only drunks would be like, this could save my life. Let's see if I could do something a little bit easier. They started experimenting, taking things out and putting things in. And um, when Bill, Bill Wilson, if, if anyone doesn't know, uh, he was one of the co-founders of AA, when he was in Akron and he uh, found Dr. Bob, he was still in that experimental phase, right? And I'm going to cheat and use the book here. He had, he knew, he was convinced of the need of moral inventory, the confession of personality defect, defects, restitution to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necess necessity of belief and dependence upon God. This is all in the oral tradition. They got a whole bunch of different texts they're working with. They're working with the Bible. They're doing, they're doing all this stuff, right? And they're, they're, they're literally putting things in, taking things out and hammering it out. And while he was, you know, Bob got drunk, at least, you know, he got drunk on his trip to AC, like it didn't work right away for him. Like they had to figure out just how close to those four absolutes they could stray before they would get drunk. And once they realized how far away from those absolutes they could get, and they decided to write the book, they just took those six concepts and just put them into 12 steps, right? And so, and it, it always, I, I don't wanna be melodramatic, but it's true people died figuring this out, you know? And so this is really, really well developed. <laughs> and so anybody who's experimental, you know, I used to have people say, hey, just try it this way. And if you think you can improve it when you're living in 10, 11, and 12, go for it, you know? But my big thing is like, you know, really, you know, they really experimented with this, right? This isn't just like deep thoughts by Bill Wilson. Uh, this is what they say that happened with bitter experience. So with that, watching my time. I got 30 minutes. All right, let's talk about steps one. And uh, we are going to have an ask it basket tomorrow. Um, and I'll be here during the break. So if you have any questions, uh, just come, you know, if you don't want to wait till tomorrow, just come and tell me now. And if there's something that was unclear, I'll just clarify it when I talk again tomorrow. Um, so uh, Bill Wilson, who uh, was the co-founder of AA, he had this doctor, Dr. Silkworth, and Dr. Silkworth worked in this hospital, Towns Hospital in New York City, and he, Bill had actually been to this hospital like three times, and he didn't recover until he was there on the third time, um, but Dr. Silkworth, um, he, he ran this treatment center for alcoholic and drug addiction, and he did a lot of things that I'm not sure how this is going to work, but we'll figure it out. He did a lot of things that we associate with treatment today, right? He would get all of these people, and not all of them were what we would refer to as real alcoholics. They were just people who were drinking too much. And he would bring them into, he had, he had originally uh, had an outside practice that had nothing to do with uh, addiction, but he lost his shirt in the stock market crash, so he had to come in, uh, get a job at Towns Hospital. Um, wasn't the most reputable place. He had to come and bring his good reputation with him and try and make the place, you know, more trustworthy. And he was doing that. And he did a lot of things that we associate with treatment today. You know, people come in and you, you, you give them a good talking to and you try to put the fear of God in them. And they're like, you were going to lose your kids. You were going to lose your job. You were going to lose your spouse. You know, um, he would try to give them uh, vitamins, you know, he would put them on an exercise routine, um, you know, give them cognitive therapy, you know, things we do today. 
He also did things we would never do today, um, like uh, you know, drug them with hallucinogenics, or um, how does it, uh, you know, uh, this, oh, how does it, it's been a minute since I've read this, he would put them into, uh, Bill Wilson talks about it, it, like they call it some type of hydrotherapy, which you think would be swimming. And I've gotten two different historical explanations of what it is. One is that they chain you to a wall, they strip you down, and then they, they uh, like hose you off with a big high-powered hose, right? This is what I do to my cat. If my cat gets on my countertop, I squirt her with a big high-powered water bottle, right? So that's what they were doing to alcoholics. Like if we just, you know, um, they would give you drugs to make the detox even harder. The thought being like, because, you know, we haven't had hangovers that are bad enough, right? You know, if, if the vomiting just hurts a little bit worse, then maybe you won't do this next time. Uh, the other thing uh, that I was explaining, they would take an alcoholic and they would, uh, again, I don't know why we have to be naked, but they strip us down and they put us in a pool and then they suspend you by your neck, right? And then they, they shut off all the lights, they close all the windows and all the doors and leave you alone in a pool of water because you're just overstimulated, right? If you could just be, could just float, you'll be good, right? Um, I know that sounds crazy. There were other doctors that were doing lobotomies at the time. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it wasn't that outlandish. But he's, he's doing all this stuff. He's doing anything he can. And as some of it worked for some people, there were people that would come to him and they would either, they would come progressively and they would get a little bit better every time. And there were other people that would come and they would just be like, okay, I'm going to fly right. Today's the first day of my life. And they would just walk out of the hospital and never come back. He was actually able to help some people. He was good at his job. But there were certain people, and I don't have a, a scientific paper to back this up, but people I respect tell me, you know, at, at least 10% of the people, no matter what he did, he just couldn't help them. They just came, and they would be so sincere and he would give them the same vitamins and the same, you know, suspension and water and high-powered hose and um, talking to, and they would either just, you know, keep coming back and be worse and worse every time until they would eventually come back to die, right? Um, and he began to believe that not everybody who had a problem with alcohol was the same. And the people that he couldn't help he called those people real alcoholics, chronic alcoholics, hopeless alcoholics. And I think sometimes when we make the distinction, people think we're being like competitive. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he made a distinction between the hard drinker and the real alcoholic. And a real alcoholic is a person who doesn't respond to treatment, right? They just don't respond to treatment. So if you're a treatment center, you know, failure, welcome. You're in the right place, right? Um, I... I myself tried treatment, treatment three times, failed every time, so it's okay. Um, and so I'm just gonna, he, and what he said was, alcoholic is just like al alcohol and then allergic alcoholic. He just said these people, these real alcoholics, they're allergic to alcohol. Um, I heard you guys heard Charlie Parker a while ago. He's like, they have an abnormal reaction when alcohol is in their system, and they have an abnormal reaction when alcohol is not in their system. <laughs> We're going to talk about that, right? So I only got two problems, when I drink and when I don't drink. And so uh, we're on page 28 in the Roman numerals, which is going to be XXVIII. Um, and so this is actually written by Dr. Silkworth. And um, 
Originally, this was kind of uh, like the hall pass for alcoholics because they were afraid if he didn't write this chapter, nobody was going to believe the book was real. Um, and when the first time they did the printing, he didn't even sign his name to this, right? <laughs> he didn't want to be associated but after it was a success. He was like, sure, you can use my name. So this is, his, this is his hall pass for us that we can be believed when we say things and that we're not just people out trying to get money or whatever, take advantage of, you know, alcoholics. Um, and it's at the top of the page. It says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, so people like Mary is a manifestation of an allergy. So just an allergy is just an abnormal reaction of the body, usually adverse. On these, um, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate, temperate drinker. Um, there are theories now as to what causes the craving, but at the time, it was a phenomenon. I don't know what causes it, just something causes this craving. Um, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So I'm not exactly certain how this is going to work, but I'm going to try to write on the board, okay? Uh, I don't know if I can take that. Can I take this? Yeah. All right, we'll see how that goes. All right, so, and we'll see... With the marker. Okay. Um, so here's the marker. So, and I know I'm not supposed to put my back on the everyone, but we'll see how that goes. Okay. So for step one, I've got a problem. The problem, right? I can't solve a problem if I don't know what problem I have. And a lot of times I thought my problem was that I didn't have boundaries with toxic people, I didn't have boundaries with toxic people, but that wasn't why I drank. And um, that I couldn't like avoid triggers, which for me, I mean, they were like, a change your places and your playmates. Like, I drank with everyone. I drank with my family, I drank with my friends, I drank with all my boyfriends. I was like, I, I remember one time uh, being in downtown Soho, I'd, I'd never been there before, and I have never been there since, but I found people to drink with. I, you know, it's like, really change your playgrounds and your playmates. It's like, I, I'll just find new people and new places to drink. That, that's me, right? So that, if that worked for anyone, awesome, but it, it never worked for me, right? So I've got this problem, and the first problem that Dr. Silkworth is talking about, oh, let's see if this gets here, is with my body, right? Because what happens is if I put alcohol, so here's the the first problem. If I put alcohol in my body, it sets off this allergy. And now I don't, you know, I don't uh, break into hives or anything like that. I'm not going to start sneezing. I'm not going to go into anaphylactic shock. What's just going to happen is if you give me a drink of alcohol, I'm going to want another drink of alcohol. And I'm actually going to want that alcohol more than the first drink. Um, let's see if this works. So if I have one drink of alcohol, I want that. But then if I, that after that, then I'm going to want that second drink even more. And after that second drink, I'm going to want that third drink even more. And after that third drink, I'm going to want the fourth drink even more. Fifth drink even more. And I am going to keep drinking until, I know we're, we're kind of light here. We'll try and get some, uh, We'll try and get some, I'll try and get some markers for tomorrow. <laughs> All the things I tried to manage, it didn't even occur to me to do this. Um, that's that's self-will for you. Um, and so I, 
I, you know, I just, I just keep, the more I drink, the more I want to drink, right? Um, and it's, it's not always, it's, it's not because anything stressful is happening. I, I, I blacked out and passed out and missed my 30th birthday. It was a good time. I was upset I missed the party, right? But it was just the allergy kicked in and they kept doing shots and the more shots I had, the more shots I wanted. And that's the allergy. And it, it sets off this craving. Now, a lot of times I will hear people say, I'm craving alcohol, but they haven't had a drink in like 30 or 60 days. That's not the craving if we're talking about the terms in the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. The craving is when it's in my system. The craving is when it's go time, get a helmet, it's going to get ugly. That's the craving. It's in my body. 24 to 48 hours after my last drink, that's over, right? I'm not in the craving anymore. And then I got another problem once the craving's gone, but we're going to talk about this for a second. So I have this craving, and then I have a loss of control. I just cannot control how much I drink. Um, and I tried all kinds of things to try to control how much I drank. I would do things like drink and then take sleeping pills so that I would pass out so I wouldn't drink so much. I, I would drink really disgusting things um, in order to like not like the taste um, so that maybe I wouldn't drink it so fast. Um, you know, I, uh, there's a guy in the book in chapter three, he ate two sandwiches and then drank a bunch of milk, hoping that if he had like a full stomach that he wouldn't drink too much. Now people are like, well, that's, you know, they're like, that's the definition of insanity, trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And I'm like, nah, nah, nonsense. He tried something different. He ate two sandwiches and a glass of milk. Don't you understand? Are you not scientific minded at all? You know, like the control was the alcohol, you know, the variable was what he did. But anyway, so it's a loss of control. And because of that, I get drunk, right? And because of this, because of this phenomenon, I am powerless over alcohol, right? I just, once I start, and it, it's not that this happened every single time that I drank. It really didn't. There were times, I really think it was divine intervention at my mom's 60th birthday party, I didn't get drunk, right? I, she was a, she's passed on, so it's okay to share this. She was a diligent member of Al-Anon, and I think God just threw her a miracle so she could have a good 60th birthday party, right? But like, it, it, it you know, it, it wasn't that every single time I drank, it was just that I couldn't tell you what kind of night it was going to be. I could not call my shots, right? Sometimes we were going to have two. Sometimes I was going to drink until I passed out. Who knows? And that's, that's the first half of step one. I'm powerless over alcohol because of the reaction that my body has, right? Now, that would be okay <laughs> if that were my only problem. Um, I, uh, I'm real hesitant to curse because we're recording and everything, but I, I did have a friend who used to say, like, step zero is this shit's got to stop, right? We all have that morning, you know, you wake up where you're just like, oh, oh, no, no. Like, the fun of drinking is nowhere worth all of this, right? And so uh, we're going to stop. Like, and, and we make a decision. I'm talking about, I'm not speaking for all of you, but you're here, so, you know, just in case you're like me, I'm talking about real chronic alcoholism. At some point, we make a decision, and we want to stop, and we don't want it for anybody else. We just want it for us, because it, the juice is not worth the squeeze, right? We just want to stop, and in that moment, if you give people like me a lie detector test, we'll pass. 
We don't ever want to drink again. We're not playing anyone. We're not trying to get our job back. We're not trying to get our spouse back. We just want to stop for us. And we make a decision that we are going to stop. And it is a decision, right? And in that moment, the, the concept of ever drinking again is just never, ever, ever going to happen, right? Um, now we're going to see what uh, Dr. Silkworth says about that. Because he, and you can tell the language if you look in the book. When Dr. Silkworth says things, he says things like, oh, they're really remorseful. When Bill's writing things, he's like, four horsemen are waiting for you. It's hideous. You wish for death. Like, you can totally tell he's observing this and not living it. Um, but <laughs> this is, he was a good guy. He helped us a lot. But you could tell he's, he's watching this, right? Down at the bottom of the page, same page, 28, XXV, I. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Now, when I drank, I had my favorites, okay? Um, vodka cranberry uh, with a twist of lime, margaritas, blue moon, clean taps with oranges, not lemons, right? That's, those are my favorites. I personally don't understand why they keep making Jägermeister. It's gross. But if all there was was available was Jäger, I'd make it happen, right? Hold your nose, down it, got a Diet Coke chaser. We're going to make this happen because I'm not drinking it for the taste. I'm drinking it for the way it makes me feel. That's the effect, right? And if I'd have written this, I'd have said, I love it. Not because I like it. I love it. Don't ever leave here thinking that I didn't have some good times without call. I did, right? And if they would have just stayed good times, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but, um, and so I did love it. And the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their, only, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. Such big words. Restless, I'm bored. So bored. Have you ever walked into a party and been like, this is going to take a lot of cocktails? <laughs> right? <laughs> like... I'm irritable. Everyone is getting on my last nerve. You know what I mean? If you had my job, if you had my boyfriend, you would drink too. And they're discontented. That's putting it so mildly. I'm clinically depressed. I'm really, really sad. You know, I'm unhappy, right? Unless they can again, they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity, right? What does that mean? I see other people getting away with it. My coworkers are going out at happy hour, and they're drinking, and they're getting away with it. Nothing bad is happening to them. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, so that's this thing over here, right? Um, <clears throat> they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, um, Emerging remorseful, right? Remorseful, that's how we know. Suicidal, remorseful, <laughs> with a firm resolution not to drink again. And it's firm. We're not playing anyone. Um, and this is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery, right? So I have my own personal hellacious groundhog day. Where, um, and so that, that's my real problem over here. That's my, oh... Let's see if that works. Let's try another thing. It's in my mind. So I, I have a niece. She's adorable. And um, she's adorable teenager now. She was an adorable toddler. And she is, unfortunately, allergic to peanuts. Um, we had, 
like we had a family member not really understand how this works one time and accidentally give her some uh, trail mix and they just took the peanuts out and they thought she'd be fine, but there was dust from the peanuts in there. So that was a fun trip to the ER. She's really allergic to peanuts. And um, uh, pretty early on, she figured it out. And I remember one time I offered her a cherry and she saw that cherry and she saw that pit inside that cherry and she decided it was a nut. And she said, no, thank you. I'm allergic to nuts, and handed it back to me and walked off, right? She's not like, she's not dumb, but she wasn't a genius. She was just sane, right? She didn't want to go back to the ER. (laughs) And so she just doesn't eat peanuts. I don't, I never had to watch her. Like if we would go to the store, she wouldn't run up and grab candy and try to eat it while I wasn't watching, right? It's just, just saying, right? So I, but I am allergic to alcohol. I, I, I'll give you a laundry list of all the things that happened due to my, I don't know if you guys can see this nice little uh, souvenir I have here. This is not a beauty mark. This is what happens when you punch through a window, right? And I remember my dad was like, who gets into a fight with an inanimate object, Mary? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, the window had it coming. What did the window do to you? It's like logic only a drunk person can have, right? That's what happens. So clearly I'm allergic to alcohol, a bad reaction to it enough that it's enough I shouldn't do it. But I have this mind that has an obsession, and I make a decision to stop. I make a decision to stop, and then one thing leads to another. And this is how, this is an example of how it worked for me. I go out with my coworkers, have just a god-awful experience, um, and I come home, and my boyfriend, my live-in boyfriend, I think we call them partners these days, I'm older, back then you just called them boyfriends, is very unhappy with me, right? And I, when I first wake up, my checking account is in the red because I'm the type of drunk that buys b- drinks for the whole bar when I'm drunk. My checking account is in the red. I came home way too late. My boyfriend is sleeping on the couch. My coworkers are not making eye contact with me when I come into work. So initially, I'm never, ever doing this again. I've lost the respect of my coworkers. I've lost the trust of my boyfriend. I don't have any money. I'm never doing this again, Right? Then one thing leads to another, and I was like, you know what? It's going to be okay. I get off of work at 5.30. Everybody's going to work. Everyone's going to happy hour. I'm just going to leave at 4.45. The bar is actually in my building, so I'm just going to go. I'm going to have a couple. I'm in walking distance of my house. I'm going to walk home. My boyfriend, he's going to get home at like 6, 6.30. By that time, I'll be having dinner made. I will be able to brush my teeth. Everything's going to be just fine, right? So I go down there. It's 5.30, and I'm like, well, that's okay. I can just tell him that I'm going to happy hour right now. And he'll be mad, but I'll pick up Thai food on the way home, and he'll get over it, right? So then it's 6.30, and I'm still there, and I'm still drinking. So it's okay. I'm just going to order the Thai food and have it delivered. And then the Thai food and I will get there about 7.30, and it'll be okay. 8 o'clock, the Thai food's there. I'm not. I'm still drinking. And at this point, my drunk logic is, well, I'm already in trouble. Might as well make it worth it. Right? So that's, that's how the obsession would present itself in my mind. Right? So there, here I am. I make a decision. I always drink again. Um, that's insane. Um, and what it is, is a loss of choice. Um, and if I... 
I'm going to say this, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. If you are doing this, please, please stop. This is why it doesn't work to tell a newcomer to just not drink and go to meetings. If they're very far advanced, if they're a real alcoholic, they're not going to be able to do it because they don't have a choice. And it tells me on page 24, and I'm going to read it right here. This is the regular numbers, page 24. Um, this in italics, Joe and Charlie used to call it the squiggly writing. Um, it says, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We're unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. I can remember what happened. I can't remember with sufficient force the suffering and humiliation. It's not that I, it's not that I can't always remember. It's that I have certain little mental blank spots left to my own devices that I cannot remember. And so telling me to think through the drink, telling me to just not drink no matter what, I can't do it. It's right up there literally with telling someone like who's in a wheelchair, get up and walk. They can't. My brain doesn't work that way. It can't. It's an illness. So um, we are without defense against the first drink. I'm going to read the next paragraph, and then I'm going to circle back this tomorrow. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. I did actually touch a hot stove by accident when I was uh, in the third grade. I have never done it since. I will literally go up to, sometimes I'll be around ovens, like stoves, and if it's an electric, I'll just tell people, I'll be like, back, back, get away, back. It really, really hurt, you guys. I had this huge blister. I mean, half my hand was blistered for like six months. It was gross and painful, and I only ever did it once. Right, and I never did it again. And even when the stove's not on, sometimes I'll shoot people away from the stove, right? Because that's a defense mechanism, a natural defense mechanism of the brain. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't work for alcohol left on my own devices. So, um, usually, if my pen were working, we'd ride off to the side. I'm screwed. <laughs> that's. Step one, you know, like, uh, um, yeah, I can't, I can't drink safely, and I can't just not drink. And uh, when I, you know, I told you guys when I first came to AA, I could just not drink for six weeks and go to meetings, and then by the time that I was, um, I actually got someone got a hold of me and got me through the steps, like, I'm drinking, like, I'm getting up in the morning saying I'm not going to drink anymore, and then I'm drinking by that night. One of the worst car wrecks I ever got, drinking, driving accidents I ever got into in my life. I had just left an AA meeting. I met my son's father at a bar, and he's like, hey, where have you been? I was like, oh, I was at my AA meeting. I don't know if he thought it was like Weight Watchers or what, but he was like, okay, what are you drinking? And he ordered me a drink. Like, it was just, you know, like, I mean, I went directly to the bar and drank. Um, and then I, I had uh, one of the worst car wrecks in my life, and I was drinking again within five days. And I just, and I was, I was down in Dallas. I had gone to Dallas to get sober because they told me that this group down there had luck with knuckleheads. And I remember as I was watching the beer go up to my hand face, I just thought, 
here we go again. You know what I mean? I didn't want to drink. And in that moment, I knew it was going to turn out bad, and I still couldn't just not drink, right? And I've talked to lots of other people now. I'm, I'm not weak. I'm not morally deficient. Uh, it's a, it's, there's a lot of textbook alcoholics out there. I just, that's just a real alcoholic. So um, I've already taken the time. We were, uh, we're going to take more time. You guys aren't going to get as big of a break, but that's okay. I see a lot of people shaking their head and smiling at me. So of all of you who think I'm talking too long, just scold those people afterwards, okay? Um, and so this is awful. <laughs> you know, and left to my own devices, um, I'm going to drink myself to death. And I figured this out on my own, living out there um, in, uh, in the world, you know, and I, I'd heard enough people talk about bad things in AA. I, and I, I, remember, um, I remember at some point, like, going to a meeting, just screaming at people and being like, I'm doing everything you say. I'm doing everything you say. I'm avoiding everyone. I'll give you an example of some of the things they told me to do. They said, uh, you can't go to grocery stores because they sell alcohol there. I was like, okay, you can't go into a gas station because they sell alcohol there. Maybe they don't do that in North Carolina. In Missouri, they sell alcohol in grocery stores and gas stations, right? So you're going to have to pay at the pump. You can't go to the grocery store. can't go to a restaurant because they sell alcohol there. So you're pretty much going to have to do drive-through for the first year of your sobriety. <laughs> You know, that, that's the kind of advice that I was getting for trying. And I remember I had a notebook, and I was like, okay. And I wrote it down. Um, I, an outside issue, you know, Chris R. talks about issue, man. Outside issue I have is an eating disorder. You tell someone with an eating disorder, you have to eat drive through food exclusively for a year. They're like, okay. That is a tremendous amount of willingness. I'll just tell you, it, it didn't work. It, it just didn't work. Um, and so... Uh, I don't know why, there's no, there's no notes there. I don't know why I keep going over there. But anyway, so we're going to talk about what Dr. Silkworth noticed when Bill finally uh, had a spiritual experience and he came back and he started asking if he could start working with the drunks on the, the psych ward that he had just left. We're going to go back to um, XXIX, which I believe is Roman numeral 29. And this is what he talks about. It says, on the other hand, and strange it may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily, suddenly, easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. You know how I talked about they had the four absolutes and then they had the six concepts, and then they had the 12 steps. Dr. Silkworth was like, I don't know. They got all these rules. Sometimes they say there's four. Sometimes they're sick. Now they got 12, but there are rules. <laughs> you know, you got to follow the rules, right? And what he said is what he noticed is that the 10 step promises. And so I'm, this is step two, step two, all about hope. Uh, step two is um, came to believe the power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I want to read what sanity looks like. It's going to tie in. Okay. Sanity is mentioned on page 84, regular, regular pages, and it is the 10-step promises. And this is what sanity looks like. Bottom of 84. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. Remember, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't avoid the hot stove 
now I'm, I'm not going, like I tell people I don't run into burning buildings and I don't drink alcohol because I'm just sane because that's the promise of the program. We react sanely and normally and we have find this has happened automatically, not from attending meetings, unfortunately, um, automatically from doing the steps. Um, we will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us with any thought or effort on our part. It's a little misleading. It's a lot of thought and effort in the steps. But um, thought or effort on our part, it just comes. That is the miracle of it, The miracle, the, it being the program. We, we're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Now... Before everyone runs off trying to like volunteer to be the beer person at your next family event, they're going to go into detail about this on page 100. <laughs> and let's talk about that first, okay? Um, so it's, it's conditional. Um, but if I do what this book says, then the obsession to drink just kind of evaporates. And I'm not fighting the temptation to drink. And I, then I can do all that stuff, go to meetings and just not drink, um, you know, think through the drink just not drink no matter what. That's the 10 step promise. But if we try to just tell a newcomer who's just, you know, in the throes of step one, not gonna be able to do it, right? Um, so we are gonna talk about step two formally. If you go to the chapter, We Agnostics, remember when I said there is actually a test to determine if you're alcoholic or not? I was not making it up. I don't know. I spent four years in AA. I didn't know about this. Two-question test at the top of 44. And I'm just going to read the paragraph. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we had made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If you honestly want to, if when you honestly want to, not for anyone else, but if you want to, you cannot quit entirely, so you can stop, but you can't stay stopped, right? Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. That's it. That's all it takes. It's not about if you're a nice drunk or if you're a mean drunk or if you go home with the wrong person when you're drunk or if you have a bad credit score or if you've ever been to prison or if you've ever done drugs or anything like that. It's just can you call your numbers and can you just not drink? That, that's, that's all we're looking at here. Um, if that being the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, for some of us, about half of us, that's going to be bad news, right? Because we're going to have a problem with the God thing. Now, um, when I went through this work, the way they simplified step two for me is they just said, hey, do you hope what worked for me can work for you? And I said, yeah. They're like, all right, good. Step two done. Check. And we moved on. That's all we did. But this is a big book study, so we're going to look at why they said that. <clears throat> and so what they, they said here is on page 45, um, first full paragraph, lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power with which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. And I already have a power greater than me. That's alcohol, right? It, it, it tells me how much I drink, and it tells me when I drink, right? I can't control it, and I can't not do it. Obviously, where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. And so when we got into details, they told me, if you hope what worked for us, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous could work for you, if you hope the instructions in this book are a power greater than alcoholism, you've done step two. You're good. 
you don't have to figure out what your exact conception of God is, which was a huge relief for me because honestly, I just didn't know what I believed. I'm not real clear on it now. I think there is a God. I'm pretty confident about that. But anything more, it's kind of hard to comprehend. I'm a finite being. He's infinite. I call him he because it's easier on me. He's probably bigger than that. You know, it's just my feeble, my feeble human brain. That's about all it can hold on to. Um, so here, here's how you know. Here's the question to ask yourself if you want to know if you've done step two. It's on page 47, and it's in the middle of the first full paragraph. It says, we needed to ask ourselves but one short question. So just one question for step two. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there's a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe or that he's even willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. And that's such a relief because it tells me on page 24, I've got a week to a month. I don't have time to figure out exactly what I do and don't believe about God because my alcoholic brain is doing push-ups trying to get me back out there. Let me pray here for a second. The only thought that's coming to my brain is to not tell you guys what to do, which I wasn't planning on getting bossy, so I don't know what that's all about. But um, I, uh, I love you all in that non-creepy, uh, totally appropriate AA kind of way. This has been one of the best uh, nights of my life. Thank you.